as we take up this section, we are now into the missionary journey. They have gone to the island of Crete, and remember, they have shared in, uh, throughout the entire island of Crete. At the end of that, they had spoken with the governor or proconsul, as it's translated in the ESV, and they had in interacted with an individual who was opposing them, caught up in magicians and magic and all kinds of things, and he had been confronted and told you son of the devil and then basically put into blindness and not just general blindness but utter blindness where he would not even be able to recognize whether the sun is up or not whether it's day or night or not complete darkness for a time would come upon him and then even that governor in that place believed having been astounded with the words of the lord now what we did not have, we got in that passage Paul's confrontation of the false teacher who tried to turn him away, but we did not get an expansive expression of anything that Paul preached in Crete. We only know it was the word of the Lord. We know it was the word concerning Jesus. But an example of how he delivered that and kind of where he started and where he went. We didn't get that in Crete. We get that here as they're in Antioch of Pisidia, which is a different Antioch. Now, don't be confused. There were many, many, many cities named Antioch in this day because the, the present emperor named all these cities in different regions after his daddy. And so you've got Antiochs all over the place. They started in an Antioch in Syria, and they have now in Antioch of Pisidia in a very different city. But what I want us to begin to think about this is, as they came into this place, the scripture tells us here, they came into uh, the location where uh, they're, they're going. And was there, as was their custom that we'll see unfold as we go through this book, they enter into the synagogue. The wonderful thing about them entering into the synagogue is also because God said, first to the Jews and then to the Greeks. And so their clear pattern in those early days, as it was Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth, was to go into the synagogues. It was likely, if God was going to bring some converts from within the synagogue, that you would have individuals readily to be trained for leadership because they would be acquainted with the word of God and not starting necessarily from absolute scratch, not simply coming out of paganism and trying to figure out what's the difference between the two. Judaism had set forth the law and the prophets. And when it finds its fulfillment in the person of Christ, it, it, it reaches indeed epic proportions of power and clarity. So he would go first to the Jews. Now it says in there that as they gathered in the synagogue, they read the law and the prophets. What's interesting about that is in the earliest days of the synagogue, they would read just the law. Then, uh, under the brutality that had taken place under Antiochus Epiphanes, they had been forbidden the reading of the law. So in their gatherings, they would read the prophets. 
subsequent to that, they began to read the law and the prophets. Now, I just simply say that because those events that are historical unfoldings that seem, well, what's, what's going on there? Well, by withholding the law from them by an oppressive man, it introduced the rest of the Old Testament scriptures to the reading of the people so that they would hear regularly the law and the prophets and they would have those preparatory messages, pictures, prophecies, and pointers to Christ in greater detail than if they had just been reading the Torah. So just, just little ways in which you kind of sit back and look at history and look at circumstances and see God is just absolutely orchestrating things in interesting detail. Where even the wicked intentions of man serve the greater purposes of God and unfold in a remarkable way. Then he says, after they've read the law and the prophets, it says they sent word to them who are visiting, said, uh, if you have a word of encouragement. Now, we don't know how generally this was. They specifically spent, sent a word to them. They didn't necessarily open it up to any and all who had something to say. But these men clearly, through some discussion in advance, they understood that Paul was one trained at the feet of Gamaliel. They understood that he was one trained coming as a Pharisee of the Pharisee, that he traveled and taught and preached, that he had been in Jerusalem, that he had been in other places. And so they knew, so they sent word. Do you have any, now your ESV says, word of encouragement. Now, the King James the New American Standard, or the NIV, if you had them there, it says a word of exhortation, which I think is a little bit more appropriate in this case. It can be to the point of encouragement, but it can also carry with it the sense of an, an appeal. The, 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 the word there really carries this. It is a, um, a word of exhortation, admonition, and encouragement. It is instructive, admonitory, conciliatory, conciliatory, it is a powerful discourse, okay? So in other words, do you have a message to share with the people that will admonish them, exhort them, encourage them? Do you have something? Now, you say that to Paul, what kind of answer you think you're getting? Yes, indeed, funny that you should ask. And so he stands up and the scripture gives a sense of it. After the reading, they're kind of mulling over, waiting for the next thing that's going to happen. So he stands up and he, and he kind of quiets everybody down, gets them to realize as they're looking around. Okay, he's getting ready to say something. He stood up and he, and he hushes everybody with his hands. And then he begins to speak. And his introduction is interesting. He simply says, men of Israel which would generally be those who are in the synagogue, and those who fear God. Because why? In the mercies of God, he was drawing people, even then, from out of the Gentiles and making them God-fearers, which was often the term for a proselyte or someone who had at least abandoned their other gods and was acknowledging the God of the Scriptures. Israelites, men of Israel, and those who fear God. And then he says the simp simple word, akuete. 
listen. It's interesting that he he gives that phrase. He doesn't not just a general introduction, but he's what by stating that simple listen, or give ear, or hear. He wants them to know that what he's about to say needs to be heard. It is an important message. uh, I like that if you go far enough back to the Geneva, it says, hearken. I want you to hear this. I want you to understand this. And I want you to act upon this. That's the broadest scope of a kuate. Not just have a listen. Hope you enjoy what you're about to hear. No, no, no. But here it goes. And we're going to look at six simple things in this section from 13 to 23 that unfold. And as we see them, uh, what happens is the scriptures begin to show us men say certain things. And then the scriptures many times reveal other things. Who do we value more? What men say or what the scriptures say? Well, listen to how he begins his message to them in verse 13. It says, the God of this people chose our fathers. So, I mean, it's interesting if you just listen. The very first thing that he mentions there is the fact that, and each of these really is, a, is something about God. He is the chooser. Well, choosing, God chose them and didn't chose the other nations. Why are you going to start there? That's going to make some people uncomfortable. To, to use the term here, choose, in English, is basically the same root word that you have translated so many other places, elect. And some people today strongly say these words. Don't talk about election. Because that'll make people confused and uncomfortable. You know, first get them saved and then you start to tell them those things. Have you ever heard that? People say those kinds of things. Uh, but, but again, their, their thoughts are, this will be more effective. This will be easier. This will be more compelling. This will be less uncomfortable. Listen, the whole gospel is foolishness or an offense. Okay? You can't make it easier. You can't make it more acceptable. Some, and so the, what's interesting to me is Paul starts right with this. God is the one who chooses. His, what I might call, electing action and authority. God chose this people. Now generally, we're looking today at what God did and does. And what you'll find is there's often great parallel between what God did and what God does because God doesn't change, right? So as we begin to unfold this, now most most people, if you talk to them about this, 
they don't have a problem. It's a challenging thing in the church today for people to wrestle with the ideas of election and predestination and choosing. It, it, it confounds and confuses people because they're misled by a host of things. The scriptures help with that by not starting right now here today with you, but going back. Going back to when there were all kinds of men spread across the face of the earth and God chose one man, Abraham, and then one of his children, Isaac, and then one of his children, Jacob, and then from Jacob to make himself a nation. And that that nation, not any of the other nations, would be especially his, uniquely his. And that's just a simple biblical fact that nobody usually has a problem with because that is them and that is them. That has nothing to do with me, so I'm good with it. God can choose as long as it's not something that necessarily affects me and other people, as long as it doesn't impinge on my rights. And that is not how it works, brothers and sisters. But I want you to look at this. It's important to understand when you deliver this idea that God is the chooser it comes with clear notions because oftentimes people will start to swell up immediately well god chose them because um they were better they were more holy they were more humble and they'll put the reason for god's choosing in them or maybe even they'll go so crazy as with all the religions that were in the world they chose to worship god so god chose them and put the choosing first on men. No! Go back with me briefly to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6, God through Moses conveys to the people uh, prior to their entering the promised land a reminder of how it really worked. It says this, verse, chapter 7 verse 6, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, which means separated, not necessarily righteous in themselves, but God is the, the idea of holy meant consecrated or set apart. God was taking them and making them a special people for himself. And he goes on to explain it. He says, uh, for the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. He hasn't chosen you because you are a treasured possession. He's chosen you to be a treasured possession. So he's going to treasure you not because of your worth, but because of his grace. He goes on, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So you got all of the people, but God has given this special privilege to them and not the others, right? He goes on to say, it was, verse 7, not because you are more in number than any of the other peoples. It's not because you're the mightiest nation. It's not because you are more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Get that phrase very clearly. God looks down upon the face of the earth, and again, as a holy and righteous God, what does he see among men? Does he find righteous men? No, he does not. But in his mercy, he set his love on them 
and chose them to be his above all of the other peoples of the earth. Stay with me over in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Still speaking to the children of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. So it wasn't because they were a mighty nation. And we would say, of course, numbers are not ultimately what matters to God. What matters is the heart. Well, was their heart right? Was their heart good? Well, listen to what it says in chapter 9, verse 4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord has thrust them out, the nations that are there, and gives you their land, do not say when God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into possession of this land. Hmm. So don't think for a moment it had anything to do with what you've done to deserve it. Because his answer is this. It is because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is driving them out. Not because of your righteousness or uprightness of heart that you are going to possess the land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord is driving them out from before you. That he may confirm the word that he swore to your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know therefore... Whenever it, that little little phrase, know therefore, that's kind of like, get this, get this. The Lord is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Okay, so now you're getting confused. If God did not choose them because they were a more, uh, a more numerous and mighty nation than others, and if God did not choose them because they were more righteous than others, then why in the world did God choose them? And the simple answer is, because it was His will. But why them and not another? Because it was His will. But I don't understand why he would choose one nation and leave the rest. Okay, I agree. You don't understand, which is fine because we can't understand all the things of God. But it's clear. And he's not even done. Go with me to Deuteronomy 10, if you would. Verse 14, where he unpacks it even a little bit more. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven. And the heaven of heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. So basically, I ask you this. What does God own? Everything that exists. And then it says, what? Yet, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers. And chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Now I ask you this. Can you see the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Hivites rising up and saying, not fair. Can you see it? Wait. Now what's coming on them. Why, why they are not chosen to be his special people is because of their wickedness the children of israel are also wicked unrighteous 
and stubborn. Some remain in their wickedness, and God pours out his judgment on them. Others who are in their wickedness, God chooses to meet with love and mercy. Is it fair? Well, what do you mean? Is it unfair? I mean, you think about this. What belongs to God? Everything, right? I mean, if, if I were, and I don't, uh, to, to own 50 cars, and I decided one day just to see what it would feel like to drive one of them into a telephone pole. I mean, and I just drive it in there. I've destroyed the car, right? Can anyone say I've done wrong? Now, you might call it foolish. You might say, but, but the fact is this. I, I can still say after the fact, what, you're calling me foolish. I still have nine cars. How many you got going on? I mean, how did I get to the place that I've got? I had, had those things to do with, and you didn't. The fact is, if it's mine... I can do with it whatever I want. If I want to give all my money away to the poor, I could give all my money away to the poor. Whatever's mine, I get to do with it as I want. If I want to take a piece of, a, let's say I own a piece of art that's been painted by Rembrandt or someone, and I choose to remove that from the mantle and put a drawing made by my kid there. Don't I have a right to do that? It's my house. I own it. I own both the paintings. I can choose to put one on display and set another aside. I can choose to put one on display that everyone would say is less worthy of display. And I can choose to set aside one that others will say is more worthy. Can I not? Now remember, this is in the promised land that God is disinheriting them in terms of the practice of righteousness and the practice of rampant wickedness it may have been in that age that there was a nation outside of the land of Canaan that was a little bit less morally compromised than Israel at this time I don't know I'm not given those things but I know this God's choice of them had nothing to do with their worthiness he unpacks it a little bit more for us as, as he moves it forward to explain it to us uh, as we get to Romans chapter 9. So listen as I read Romans chapter 9, that powerful chapter that baffles men throughout all of the ages because they just don't take it for what it says. Listen, verse, nine, verse 6 of Romans 9. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Do you know why? Because it will never fail. The word of God will always prove true. Now, it may seem to fail sometimes when we've misunderstood it. When we've misappropriated it. So now he's going to begin to unpack it here. He says, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. And someone says, what? If they are descended, then they belong. That's, that's, that's how it works. Well, logically, yes. Physically, yes. 
but with regard to the Spirit, with regard to God's eternal purposes in Christ? No, because he's going to go on and unpack it and help us to understand it. He says in verse 7 something that, again, people will say, that doesn't make sense. Not all are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Uh, yeah, they are. What's wrong with you, Paul? You say not all Israel is Israel. Not all the children of Abraham are his descendants. That doesn't even make sense. He says, well, bear with me and I'll explain it to you. He goes on. Because they're, they're not his offspring just because they're his children. Because God says, and it quotes, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Abraham will have more than one child. But with regard to God's purposes of who will be chosen, it will be Isaac and not Ishmael. Well, why? And we start to suss that out. Here's the reason why. Because Isaac is the son of his real wife, not her handmaid. And so what we start to do naturally is we look for reasons in man for God's choices. That's our mistake. But we can't stop it because that's just kind of how the brains work. But he says, through Isaac, they will be named. This means, and he says it this way, not the children of the flesh who are counted as the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And those who have been doing the McShane's reading through the Bible have recently been reading through Galatians, and it reminds us, who are the children of the promise? Those who share the faith of Abraham, indeed, those are the ones that belong to Christ. They are Abraham's children. They are God's children. So he's, but he's not done. So he, so he speaks, first of all, these confusing words, and he's going to unpack it a little bit more. Now, we can come up with a logical reason why we think that the selection of Isaac makes sense. Because a different birth mother who was the legit wife. So we, we're, we rationalize that. So God is pleased to teach us a further lesson going on in verse 10 says this, and not only so, but also when Rebecca conceived children by one man. Okay, so, so the next patriarch is going to be explained to us in this way. Do they have different dads? No. Different moms? No. Different birthdays? No. And actually, in the way that it usually works in the rationalizing of man, who gets first? The firstborn gets first, right? Well, God's going to preempt that here. And he's going to give the promise not to the firstborn, but to the second. What? That's not the way things are commonly done. Is God bound to the way men commonly do things? He is not. And so it goes on to say this, just so that we get this. Though they were not yet born and had done neither good nor bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, 
done by the man, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. So why was one son chosen and the other not? Anything they did? Anything they were going to do? Did it have anything to do with their works? No. It had everything to do with him who calls. Not done. Let me keep reading. It goes on. The older will serve the younger. And verse 13 says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's strong language, isn't it? One God would set his love upon and give great promise and great privileges. The other would live the entirety of his life only to, in the end, be, remain apart from God's promise, apart from God's blessing. He goes on. He's not done. And he says, uh, well, verse 14 struggles with this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Because what happens immediately when we hear this? God chose one nation and not the others. A man had two sons. God chose one and not the other. He had two sons and God chose one and not the other. We start to say, it ain't right. We start to say that. And, and uh, it's not fair. It's not. And, and the scriptures say, is there injustice in God? And what does the scripture say then? By no means. In the Greek, that is the, one of the strongest uh, statements of absolutely not. Some translations say, God forbid, in order to carry the weight of it. Is God unfair? Never. God is never unfair. If God acted only out of his justice, what would have happened? Abraham would be condemned. Isaac and Ishmael would be condemned. Jacob and Esau would be condemned. Why? Because in Adam, condemnation passed upon all men so that all have sinned. So if God merely acted in accord with justice, we're done. But praise God, justice is not the totality of God. He also delights in mercy and delights in love. And so we are so thankful that he is not only a God of justice, he's a God of mercy and a God of steadfast love that he, is, that he graciously sets upon us. And that's where it explains it here. It's not fair by no means, for he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Basically what he's saying there is what? You don't question me. I decide who I will judge and who I will mercifully set my love in on and deliver from judgment. That's mine. And he goes on and explains it. So it depends not on he who runs or human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So as we stand here today as those, in a sense, who, who, who God has brought to faith in Christ, 
through the hearing of the gospel, we have believed and repented and follow him. We know that then we are the children of Abraham as those who share the faith of Abraham. We are the children of the promise. And we look up to God and say what? I am what I am because of me? No. Because of what I've done? No. I am what I am because of your compassion toward me. Because of your mercy toward me. Because you set your love on me in Christ Jesus. Though I was no more deserving than my neighbors around me. No more deserving than others. You would have been just to judge me. As Ephesians says, we are by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of them. That's who we are by nature. But praise God, he did not leave us to the nature that we inherited from Adam. But he set within us, indeed, a new nature, a new principle, a new life in Christ by the Spirit of God. And so that we know that to, to get the sense of this, he goes on in verse 24 of Romans 9 and says this, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I call my people. And her who was not beloved, I call beloved. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So first thing we see here, strangely enough, as he begins his sermon, he starts with the fact that God is the chooser. He always has been the chooser. He chose what to do on each day of creation. <laughs> he chose exactly where Adam would be placed to work exactly who would be placed with him God has been making all of the choices all along secondly I also want you to note this scripture tells us he is not only the chooser he is the establisher look what it says in uh, still in verse 17 it had initially said this God the God of this people chose our fathers. And then secondly, it says, and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So the fact that they went down there, small in number, and became a multitude. Why is that? Well, genetically and biologically, there were a people of great fortitude. Is that it? Well, I mean, I don't, they just seem to be able to uh, have more offspring than others. That's not the case. He is the chooser. He is the establisher. Exodus says this, uh, chapter 1, verse 5 and following. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. Verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. 
they multiplied and became exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, how is it that they were fruitful and multiplied and the land became filled with them? Acts 17, uh, 13, 17 said it this way. God made the people great during their stay in Egypt. That's how it happened. Deuteronomy 26 verse 5 says this. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. You, there, he's wanting them to recite these things. A wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there. Few in number. And there he became a nation. Great, mighty, and populous. All this the hand of the Lord. Acts 17.7 says this, but as, the, as Stephen had preached, as the time drew near, which God granted Abraham, the people increased and multiplied. Now further, God is not only the establisher, so, so God's the chooser, God is the establisher, he's the one that's made them to multiply and made them to prosper in that community there. But we know this, even as they prospered, it tells us this in Deuteronomy 26, verse 6, after they became populous, it says, the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord our God, and the Lord heard our afflictions. God is not only the chooser and the establisher, we see that God is the deliverer. Right? It says at the end of verse 17, and with uplifted arm, he led them out. He chose them. He established and, and prospered them, made them more numerous. He delivered them as they came under that tremendous affliction that they were under. That it says, God, in, in Deuteronomy, let me see, uh, verse Verse 8 of Deuteronomy 26. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror and signs and wonders. He brought us into the place, this land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I want to draw your attention to one other thing, if you would. Go with me to Psalm 105. In Psalm 105, if I was to start reading verse 23, I'm going to say some things that are going to make you uncomfortable. Well, I'm going to read some things that'll make you uncomfortable. So if, it, if the scriptures make you uncomfortable, we just got to deal with that, don't we? Then Israel came to Egypt. Yeah, we already got that part. And sojourned in the land of Ham. And the verse 24, and the Lord made his people fruitful. So there again, we have, sometimes it just says they, they were fruitful. But in Acts 13, as well as here in the Psalm, it tells us why they were fruitful. He made them fruitful, right? But once they were fruitful and numerous, then the people started afflicting them and mistreating them, right? Well, God had no hand in that, did he? You better be careful when you say God had no hand over his creation. Because look what it dare say in verse 24 and 25. And he made them stronger than their foes. Verse 25. He turned 
their hearts, his foes, their foes, to hate his people and to deal craftily with his servants. So wait a second. God is the one who established them to multiply. And then God is the one, as they multiplied and became strong, decided he was going to bring on them some degree of harshness and affliction that they might be humbled and cry out to him for help. Wow. Well, why would he do that? Because he gets to do whatever he wants. Because he's God. Some people, I've read verse 25 to them before where it says, he turned the hearts of the people to hate. They're like, well, that's not true. What? Well, God would never do that. Well, we don't have a choice of saying that's not true. The verse says that. We don't have the choice of saying God would never do that. The verse says God did it. That simply should have us more faithfully saying, wow, God's ways aren't my ways and his thoughts aren't my thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are his ways above my ways and his thoughts. We can humbly say, I don't get it. But let us never arrogantly say, I don't accept it. Goes on. And if you were to see, and then he, I, I, I encourage you on your own to read Psalm 105 uh, later in the day. He sent Moses and Aaron, whom he had chosen. Boy, he's still doing what he wants, when he wants, with who he wants, whether individuals or nations. Well, what kind of God is this? A real one. The real one who's absolutely God in the full sense of that word that we don't quite understand. He sent them. Look, they performed his signs and wonders among them. He sent darkness. Goes on, and I'm going to skip around. Verse 29, he turned the waters into wine. Verse 31, he spoke and the swarms of flies came. Verse 32, he gave them hail. Verse 34, he spoke and the locusts came. On and on, 36, he struck down the firstborn. 37, then he brought Israel out. Israel was glad when they departed. And it says, verse 39, he spread a cloud over them. Verse 40, he brought quail in abundance and bread from heaven. He opened the rock and brought water out. My goodness, it sounds like he's doing it all. Yeah, I think now we're starting to figure it out. This is why some people commonly use the concept, God is sovereign over all. Or more simple English, God rules over all. Amen? Which is why no matter what's going on, no, how, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, no matter how seeming impossible, we can go to Him. Because He can do anything. And if it pleases Him to do it, it doesn't matter if nobody else agrees. God does what He pleases at all times. And, and just... Uh, yeah, re read the rest of that, uh, that Psalm 105 uh, this afternoon. I think you'll enjoy the richness of that. So he is the chooser. He is the establisher. He is the deliverer. He is the determiner of all things that, that will fold. And now, even as I, we, we unpack these things, look what it now says. Um, 
Uh, listen to what God said to Abraham back in Genesis 15. Listen, when God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will sojourn in a land that is not yours, theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But after, but I will bring judgment on that nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Wow. See, God's not just figuring out things on the fly, is he? He has determined the beginning from the end. And all parts. And he tells exactly what's going to happen. And the totality of that, from the time that God sends Moses there, until the time they, they are delivered across the Jordan into the promised land, it will say in our, in our chapter, Acts 13, about 450 years. About 400 years in bondage, about 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and then making their way on through. Putting all those pieces together. And, and, but then listen, listen to what it says in Acts 13, verse 18, because I think this is also beautiful. It said, it, the, the simple language is this, it says... And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Now, I will say this. If, you, if you, you happen to have a King James in your possession, it says for about 40 years, he carried them. But the word here is not a word for simply carried along. It is a word for he tolerated them. That's pretty good, right? You know, uh, I, I'm thinking of that, and we've got God as a, as a tremendous example. Not only that, remember, the, the, the children of uh, uh, the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hittites and all those people in the land of Canaan were already sinful and already evil. If you had gone back to chapter 15, the next verse that God said, they will be in 400 years because the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God is even patient with sinners. In, in the case of the, the sinful nations in the land of Canaan, he was patient for 450 years before he brought a degree of judgment on them for their blatant disregard. The children of Israel, 40 years. So sometimes maybe we could look at some, some dear loved one and say, uh, hey, you haven't been patient with me for 40 years yet. So please... Still be patient with me. And maybe more than that, you haven't yet been patient with me for 450 years. Okay? So be patient. We are all a massive work in progress, aren't we? Who here will fail in some way this week? Yeah. Who here will, will hurt uh, someone they love this week with their action, the attitudes, the things they say? It's gonna happen and God bore with them for 40 years I mean we see he's the determiner the tolerating patience of God and not only did he bear with them notice while they were being grumbling and 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 all of these things God not only bore with them but he graciously bore with them by that I mean now were there times that fire broke out around the camp and burned a few of those fellas Oh, yeah. What, was there times that the earth opened up and swallowed a couple of them? Oh, yeah. But all of them had proved unworthy. Grumbling, complaining, 
Uh, we had meat. Oh, that we were back in Egypt where we had. Remember that? Oh, you mean the Egypt where you cried out to God because you couldn't take it anymore? That's the one you want to go back to? But what did God nonetheless do? He supplied quail. He supplied water. He supplied bread from heaven. You know, and I think sometimes, how merciful is God? You're complaining about water? You've seen everything. Why don't you just ask for water? God, we know that you can provide water. We have none here, but you've brought us out into this wilderness and you are able to provide. Oh God, we look to you. Wouldn't that have seemed a far more reasonable response? But what was their response? Oh, we're going to die. We're going to die. There's no hope here. And then God brings water out of a rock, not a well. And, and the water from the rock was such that it, it formed streams that, that so in some sense seemed to be uh, such sufficient streams that even would follow them along their journey. We, we still got water from the rock, which spoke, we know, even of Christ. And so we, how long he bore with them and provided. Uh, God is the determiner and how, he'll determine how long to bear. Right? He gets to choose whether it's 400 years or whether it's 40 years. Not all of them made it all of the 40 years. Some of them died much more quickly for their sins. God gets to determine when patience is done. Where mercy is given. God gets to, gets to and does determine all of those things. God determines who when and how they're punished because some of the battles that took place as they entered into the promised land some of them the children of israel engaged in that battle with their swords right and fought the fight other times god entered the battle for them and hail is thrown down from heaven and more of the enemy is killed by the hail that falls from the heaven than is killed by the sword of men. But then the next time, can the people show up at the next battle and say, all right, send it. God sometimes sent hail. Sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he strengthened them. Sometimes he didn't. After their great victory in Jericho, what did they do? <laughs> Jericho, the big fortified city, we have destroyed them. Now, who can stand before us? And so they go on to the next city, I, and what happens? It's a tiny little city. I mean, we defeated Jericho. That's a useless little podunk town. Forget them. Let's just send a couple guys. And they go there to fight, and what happens? Uh-oh. Many of them get killed and they turn tail and run. And then Joshua thinks what? Oh no. Everybody was afraid of us. We've lost the fear factor. We've lost the edge of intimidation. Now they're going to gather together and destroy us. What will we do? Oh God, now we're done. 
Are you, your victory has nothing to do with whether they are intimidated or not. You could gather all of them at once with absolute no fear of you and full confidence in themselves, and I can wipe them out with a breath. Don't you know, little Joshua, it doesn't depend on you or them, but on God. That they would learn that, that he actually rules over all. That's what he's going to unpack. It says, after destroying the seven nations, he gave their land. So it, it reminds them of this. Wait a second. Did he destroy the nations or did the children of Israel come in and take the land? They did. But was it on their own by their own strength? No. So the scriptures, when it says he did it, yes, he did it by their hand, but don't miss it. He did it. So many of the prophecies, for those of you who are also reading for Ezekiel, are, are repeatedly saying things like this. I will send the king of Babylon, and I will destroy Egypt by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So God says, I will destroy by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So who did it? God or Nebuchadnezzar? Well, God and Nebuchadnezzar, but did Nebuchadnezzar or anyone ever do anything apart from God's permissive purpose and plan? No, not at all. All right, our time is run out. So uh, the last thing and what we're really going to take up next week is he is the promiser. And so what, what I want you to really get into and think about as we prepare even for what we're going to consider next Sunday. He starts in verse 13, and, 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 and he tells them the history. He tells them the plan of it as, as they say the word of encouragement. He starts his message there really in verse 17, and he, said, and, and he basically unfolds the, these simple facts. God is the chooser. God is the establisher, God is the deliverer, God is the determiner, and then he moves on from that, what we'll see next week, God is the promiser, and God is the perfecter. And I, I want you to notice this also. He starts in verse 17, and if you were to read from verse 17 down to verse 23, how long does it take you? He gets to Jesus in less than a minute. Jesus isn't tacked on at the back end of the gospel. <laughs> he, he, even as he starts with history, he gets to the declaration. And, and throughout this message, he, he gets to Jesus and he returns to Jesus and he returns to Jesus. And why do you think he does that? Because Christ is the heart of the gospel. Christ is the preeminence among all mankind. Christ is the climax of the covenants, the centerpiece of all scripture. Christ is indeed our Lord and Savior, isn't he? And so we'll come to see that all of those things that we've been seeing are true of God, are true of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and that God is still the deliverer and he has accomplished deliverance or indeed salvation through his son our savior the deliverer who is jesus christ i can't wait to get to that next week let's pray 
Lord, thanking you that we could spend time in your word and just um, glory in these things. What We're amazed, God, that, uh, that Paul is pleased to go right to what we might call the, the deep things of God, asserting your, your absolute dominion, authority, rights, power, uh, your hand in absolute control over all history, over all nations, and over all men. And God, we thank you that truth will never be a hindrance to the gospel. Indeed, all that is true is good news because it is the things that we would never have known of your being, of your power, of your authority, of your will, of your mercy, of your deliverance, that we would not know had you not made it known. Oh God, thank you for making yourself known to us. In Jesus' name, amen.